Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we do again lift up your name and we thank you that you are our salvation, you are our rest, you are our comfort, you're our sanctuary. Lord, we thank you that your yoke is not heavy, but is a delight. We thank you that there is peace in you, even in the face of turmoil in this world, as you are uh, building your kingdom, being patient, giving people a chance to repent. Lord, we do look forward to the time when your son comes, but I pray that you would help us to be your servants in the intervening time as we wait, that we would be a light in this fallen world. Lord, we uh, pray for the treats, in particular physically, as they are recovering from uh, the traffic accident. Lord, we thank you that you've made it possible for them to receive various medical care and things to speed their recovery for wisdom to the doctors. And Lord, we uh, thank you that we can see them leaning on you in this time. Lord, we also pray for Pastor Terry and... um, Pastor Dan, as they are teaching in Israel, and pray that your truth would go forth as pastors receive training in how to disciple their flocks and that they would hear the truth. Lord, we pray even this afternoon for the um, for the Iwana event that as families and kids and um, just friends all gather to enjoy having that fun. That Lord, that all of that would be an honor to you. That as the Awana family uh, grows and desires to serve you and disciple the children, to lead them to the Lord and then guide them in their walk with you, that all of those relationships would be strengthened according to your wisdom and power. And we thank you for the opportunity to work with so many young people, both in our own congregation and from outside. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of getting to be part of your work, to be used by you in the building of your kingdom, that others can enjoy the refuge that you've given us. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are addressing the question, excuse me, What does the Lord want us to say or do, if anything, about sin in other people's lives? Well, that's an important question because as I introduced last week when we started this, that if people who don't go to church know any verse in the Bible, they know the one from Matthew 7 that says, Don't judge lest you be judged. And in fact, Matthew tells us that Jesus did teach that. But Matthew also tells us later on in the very same book that Jesus himself gives instructions about confronting someone in the fellowship who's in ongoing sin. And if they don't respond, in fact, put them out of the congregation. Uh, Paul elaborates about that even more in his letter to the Corinthians where he actually rebukes them for not doing that. And for not judging that man. And yes, it is the same word that Jesus said, don't judge. So how does all that go together? Well, last week, where we started was looking at how does God look at us in relationship to our sin. And we looked at the examples of Moses and David and Solomon. And what we saw is that while Moses, David, and Solomon uh, was the most humble man on earth, a man after God's own heart, and the wisest man that ever lived, that their life, in fact, was full of sin. But what we see is God constantly in His grace working in their lives to draw them back to Himself and to restore them to a relationship with Him. In David, in so many of the Psalms, he just recounts his brokenness over his own sin as he repented and rejoiced in God's grace and mercy. And so if that's true of the most humble man on earth and a man after God's own heart and the wisest man on earth, well, how much more does that apply to a guy like me? Because I'm not even close to those guys. So I have to view myself the way God does. That was last week. So this week, we're actually going to look in Matthew 
And we're going to see both of these things do not judge and, in effect, judge. And if you look at the outline on the front of your bulletin insert, where we're going to end up down at the bottom is where it says judge, Matthew 18. That's where we're going to end up with God telling us, yes, there are times when it's appropriate to go to someone and address the sin in their life. But that's not in Matthew chapter 1. It's in Matthew chapter 18, because there's a whole lot of stuff that we need to get under our belt before we do that. So we're going to look at just a little bit of a background, and most of this actually is going to, I have some other references, but most of it's going to come from Matthew. But before we go on to talk about addressing sin, if I'm going to go address what I think is sin in Mike's life, there's a couple of things we need to settle first that's covered in Scripture. And that is, first of all, what in fact is sin? And then secondly, who gets to decide what's a sin and what's not? And those are pretty important questions. First of all, let's think about what sin is. And we're going to start in Genesis chapter 3. In fact, this is going to be page 2 of your Bible. We're going to start page 2. It won't even be hard to find. And we just need to remember and be sure that we have in our mind what sin actually is in God's mind. If you were to ask 20 people on the street, what is sin? I suppose you get 20 different answers, but what we want to know is what God thinks. And in Genesis 3, I'm going to read this story again because it's really important. Because you'll notice in this story, we know that Eve is going to take fruit from this forbidden tree and eat it. Now, God could just say, I had a rule and Eve broke it. But that's not what he tells us. It says in chapter 3, verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, Well, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we can eat, but from the fruit of the tree, that one there in the middle, God said you shall not eat from it or touch it or you'll die. The serpent said to the woman, you won't die. God just knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Now, why does God tell us that story? He could have just said she broke a rule. Why this whole conversation? It's because God has shown us why did she break the rule? Why did she choose to eat that? Well, we look at what Satan did. And the first thing he does is he wants to cast doubt about this. Is it really? Did he really say that? Now, she answers quite confidently. It's not exactly accurate, but it's really close. She answers confidently. But what does Satan say? He says, no, you won't. God just knows. God's holding out on you. There's something pretty good, and God doesn't want to give it to you. So what does Satan do? Well, he does what liars have done ever since then. When they get caught in a lie, what they do is they call the other person a liar. What do you do when you're in court and you're, you're guilty and you're accused and there's all this evidence, which Eve knew? What do you do? Well, you discredit the witness. The witness is a liar. It's not true. And that's what Satan has done. Look what he says. God, what God told you is not true. This is important to notice. He did, Satan does not tell Eve, you misunderstood God. He doesn't even do that. He just says, it ain't true. So now Eve has got a choice to make, doesn't she? She's got a liar who told her a lie. And she's got the truth giver who gave her the truth. And what does she do? She's going to decide on her own which is true and which is not. 
And she starts looking at and evaluating this fruit and thinking, I think maybe Satan was right. I think maybe that is something good and God's holding out on me. And so when she reached and took that fruit, what has she done? Yeah, she broke a rule. But what she has said is, God, I think you're full of bull. You're a liar. And she believed the liar. It's important to remember that sin is not just a matter of breaking rules. Sin is a matter of shaking your fist at God and saying, I don't think you know what you're talking about. And you have no authority in my life. That's extremely important to remember because the other side of that coin is to think that being sinless is just following the rules. That's the problem the Pharisees and Sadducees had. I follow the rules. I tithe my mint and dill. Jesus said, yeah. But your heart is far from me. You don't know the Father. It's important that we understand what sin is. Last week we looked at Moses, and I'm going to let's turn to Numbers 20 because I just we'll just look at this one example. This is where it looks pretty severe. The people are complaining. They don't like the water they've got. So Moses, in turn, complains to God that the people are complaining. And so God says, all right, take your staff, go to the rock, speak to it. Water will come out. You know the story. <clears throat> Moses is irate, ranting at the people. He strikes the rock. But notice what God says when Moses did that. We'll start in verse 11. Then Moses lifted up his hand and he struck the rock twice. He'd been told to speak to it with his rod. And water came forth abundantly and the congregation and their beasts drank. <clears throat> now we think, okay, I mean, that's not a big deal. That seemed like a pretty small infraction when it comes to breaking the rules. But look what God thinks about it. Verse 12. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you have not believed me. To treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel. Therefore you shall not bring <coughs> this assembly into the land which I have given them. There aren't any small sins. There aren't any small infractions. Because they're all saying, God, I don't believe you. I used to ride my motor I used to have a motorcycle. I used to ride my motorcycle all the time until I finally got, as I got older, I got more and more scared and I quit riding it. Because you know that old saying, there's no, there's no such thing as a fender bender on a motorcycle. It's kind of all or none. That's the way it is with sin. We need to recognize that what sin is, that sin is not merely a matter of breaking the rules. It's a matter of saying, God, I don't believe you and you don't have any authority over me. And by the same token... Being sinless is not merely conforming to rules. That's constantly what Jesus was telling the Sadducees and Pharisees. So, in understanding what sin is, there is behavior. And the next step is we need to let God decide what is sinful and what isn't. Be turning to Deuteronomy 18. Because as we see... Satan's plan to separate people from God basically is to spread lies. And ever since, Deut- uh, ever since Genesis chapter 3, the world has been full up with lies about what's true and what's not. So where do we get help? Even before the fall, Eve on her own was not able to discern what was right and what was wrong. That's why she needed to depend on God to tell her. And she rejected what God said. So how do we know what's true? In Deuteronomy 18, Moses is reciting to the Israelites the history of how they ended up where they are. They're on the east side of the Jordan River about to cross over into the promised land that God had promised to give Abraham their forefather. He's telling them what's going to happen. And... In verse 15, chapter 18, verse 15 of Deuteronomy, a crucial, crucial passage. He says that the Lord your God, this is Moses speaking to the people, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. 
You shall listen to him. That is according to all that you asked of the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see this great fire anymore or I'll die. And the Lord said, They've spoken well. They were at the mountain and they were terrified. They said, We don't want to talk to God. He's too terrible. In the sense of His righteous were afraid. We need somebody to mediate. And God said, You're right. You need a mediator. You can't stand in front of me. But God says, I'm going to send someone that will tell you the truth. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. It shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he'll speak in my name, I myself will require it of him." And then he goes on and gives the test of what a true prophet is and what a false prophet is. Now, I think we can all understand that partly God is telling Moses that he will raise up prophets to speak to them what the truth is from God. But we know when we come to the New Testament that God was talking about a particular prophet. And in fact, even the Jews at that point realized that that was a prophecy that at some point God would send a particular person to be a prophet. You remember all the times they're trying to figure out who John the Baptist is and who Jesus is. And they say, well, are you Elijah? Are you the Messiah? Are you the prophet? That's what they're talking about. But as you look in Deuteronomy 18, what is the role of the prophet? Is to tell the truth is to tell God's truth because that's the only way we can know it is if God tells us because the world is full of lies and we have no way of discerning what's true and what's not apart from God telling us. There's a reference there in uh, in Acts chapter 3 in Peter's second sermon after Pentecost Peter quotes this passage from Deuteronomy 18, and he says, Jesus, him, Jesus, he's, it's to him. He's the guy. Paul does the same thing in Acts chapter 13 in his first missionary journey. He's besitting Antioch. He does the same thing. This prophecy, the, the prophet, Jesus is the guy. It's him. He's the one that tells us the truth. I've got a listing of things there that are specifically singled out, and I'll give you some references here of places where we cannot find the truth. These are not sources of truth. One is our own desires and feelings. That's not what determines what's right or wrong. Eve tried that, and every character in the Bible since then, apart from Jesus Christ, has tried the same thing, and they were all wrong. A big part of the first part of Matthew elaborates on that, especially the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. He's talking about blessed are those who are poor in spirit, who mourn. They're talking about mourning their own sin and recognize their dependence on God. The second one, our peers and culture do not determine what is right or wrong. Um, This is the point where we're going to start walking our way through Matthew here. Um, Turn to Matthew 5 and 6, the Sermon on the Mount. This is now the prophet is going to start teaching the truth. In Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, the prophet is now telling the truth about the kingdom. The book of Matthew starts out with saying, Jesus is this anointed one, the Messiah, that God said it was going to come. And what is he doing? He's saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. Acknowledge your sin and turn away from it. And so now he's describing what is his kingdom like? What is his kingdom like? And we've talked about uh, those first, the, what are called the Beatitudes, the blessings. 
But then look at the part when you get to chapter 6. Excuse me, in the middle of chapter 5, this whole part, you've heard it said, but I tell you, you've heard it said, but I tell you, you've heard it said, but I tell you. What are all those you've heard it said? It's just the world around them, isn't it? It's their culture. It's just that's how life works, isn't it? Everybody knows that. Well, God's Jesus says, you know what? In my kingdom, it ain't like that. The things that you think are right or wrong, even the ones that are half right, the bar's way too low. Here's the truth. God is saying in your list there that our peers and culture don't determine what's right or wrong. Um, That's certainly true in our society today, isn't it? I think about how different it is now, even from this. I'm not old. I mean, not compared to some people. But I'm astonished at how much things have changed just since I was a teenager until now. Of the things that our culture and society say, that's fine. Well, I can pick a few things, but you know what? When I was a teenager, society was still just as messed up. Maybe been in different ways. The society wasn't really that much better back then than it is now. There may be specific things that chap us, but that we might hear on college campuses or, you know, there was a certain time as I was in the middle of the last century that a lot of mainline denominations that while they started out preaching the truth of the gospel, they got caught up in that. They got caught up in the culture to the point now where a lot of them, although, as has always been the case, there's always been some congregations, there have always been individuals that always stayed faithful to the Lord, but that whole world of organized religion and their leaders drifted off track and followed the world and the culture. The Lord says, well, that's not how we're going to decide what's right or wrong. Turn to Matthew 15. We're going to see another area that the Lord says that we're not going to find truth or it should not supplant truth, and that is the traditions from our elders. Traditions from our elders. Some Pharisees and scribes in chapter 15, verse 1, came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they don't wash their hands when they eat bread. Now, realize this is the religious leaders of the conservative people who are quite convinced that they are doing God's service. And Jesus said to them, Well, why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father and mother is to be put to death. But you say, Whoever says to his father and mother, Whatever I have that would help you has been given to God, he's not to honor his father or his mother. And by this, you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Now he's talking to the religious leaders of the conservative group of people that regard themselves as God's people. And he's saying, really what you're pushing is not godliness, but just the traditions of your elders. And you're not willing to accept the truth from the prophet. And I think this is another thing that we see happening now in our culture. As just in the middle of the last century, we saw mainline denominations, many of them drifting and following the culture about things about uh, marriage and gender and all of that. I think now what we see is a movement on a lot of what loosely gets put under the umbrella of evangelicalism that are defining right and wrong based on the traditions of the founders of our country. 
and the documents that they wrote to the point that that's taking precedence over God's truth. Now, obviously, as has always been the case throughout history with God's people, they're always it's mix and match. There are always congregations and believers who are not doing that. But I've personally had many conversations with people that were arguing what was right or wrong based on things that the Founding Fathers wrote in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. I'd say, well, I think if we look in the Scripture, we'll find, well, well, no, no but, but the Constitution says, well, yeah, I appreciate the Constitution. I'm glad I live in America, but... The Scripture says, well, we know the Founding Fathers were godly men, so whatever they said is right. I've had people tell me that. The Lord says, you may have a lot of good traditions, but they don't supersede my truth. When churches put the cross in the shadow of the flag, God is not honored by that and their view of what they think the flag represents. Secondly, or thir- uh, sorry, fourth, turn to Matthew 21. This is all developed by Matthew. I say developed by Matthew. You understand what I'm saying is Matthew is showing us what Jesus taught him. If you'll accept my shortcut term there. Matthew is ta- showing us what Jesus taught them. Matthew 21, 23 to 27. When Jesus entered the temple, the chief priests and elders of the people came to him while he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Of course, from the very beginning, that's the issue with the prophet. You know, A, does he know what's true, and B, does he have authority? So that's what they're challenging. They don't like what he's saying. And these are the religious leaders of the conservative branch of Judaism. Jesus said to them, Okay, I'll ask you one thing, and if you answer me, then I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John was from what source? From heaven or from men? Now, what's going on here? You and I know as we read through the Gospels, it's very common for Jesus to do this. Someone will ask him a question, and at first it seems weird because he'll respond in a way, Well, why don't he just answer the question? It seemed like, did he not hear the question? He's off in left field. Why is that? It's because Jesus is not asking the question that came out of their mouth. Jesus is aiming at their heart where the question came from. And what is this? Where that's what we're supposed to get from this story. That's why Matthew's telling us about it. So he says, well, I'll answer where my authority came from if you'll answer me this. What was the source of John's baptism, heaven or men? Now look at what they do. And they began reasoning among themselves, saying, Well, if we say from heaven, he'll say, Then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, well, we fear the people, for they'll all regard John as a prophet. And so answering Jesus, they said, We don't know. And so Jesus said, Then I'm not going to tell you where my authority is from. So what happened? Somebody respond. What was Jesus revealing about their heart? Sing out. Their question was, where did you get your authority? But what does their thinking in their mind reveal? They wanted the influence. They did not care what the truth was. They they weren't asking because they didn't care. They want to know, if I say this... What, how will that affect my position and influence? If I say this, what will people say? They never ask themselves what's true because they didn't care. We see a lot of that today too. And that's been true throughout the history of God's people. I'm not going to consider what's true. I'm going to think, what do I need to say so I can be reelected? Not what's true. 
whether it's on the right or the left, I'm not worried about true. What do I need to say to get reelected? What do I need to say to maintain my power? That's what these guys are after. They're deciding what's right or wrong based on what's going to keep them in a position of power and influence. And when somebody stands up and calls them on it, that really angers them. And that happened throughout history. I was just skimming this as I was getting ready for this. Um, it certainly happened to Elijah. Um, Micaiah in 1 Kings 22, when Ahab, the wicked king Ahab of Israel, and then uh, waffling king of uh, Judah, Jehoshaphat, they were making an alliance in order to fight the uh, Arameans, I believe it was. And all of the prophets that they had were saying, yeah, yeah, go to it, go to it. As they were making an, making alliances, Jehoshaphat was making an alliance with an unbelieving king of Israel who was not a believer, uh, who was wicked in making alliances with unbelieving nations to try to find safety and security from these unbelievers. And all of their false prophets said, yeah, that's good, that's good, that's, that's the way to protect God's people. Well, Micaiah stood up and said, no. No, that's not trusting the Lord. And so they did the only reasonable thing they could do is they put him in stocks and threw him in jail because these guys had hopelessly confused using human means to maintain political control over trusting God. That's the whole point of the story. The same thing happens to Jeremiah. Jeremiah is beaten and put in stocks in Jeremiah chapter 20 by the priests. When Jeremiah tries to approach the leaders of government and say, you're trusting in human methods, you're not trusting in God. It's the priests and the political leaders that threw him in prison for being unpatriotic. The same thing happened again in chapter 26. They threatened him with death. It's the people, the priests, and the prophets. When you start talking bad about our king, you're unpatriotic. And they threw him in prison. And he says, I'm telling you what's right and wrong from God. Same thing happened to John the Baptist. Why did John the Baptist get his head cut off? Well, he was talking about the the earthly leader at the time and was addressing his immorality. It doesn't say in the text, but where were the priests and the synagogue leaders during that? It doesn't tell us what they thought about John the Baptist addressing the king's immorality. It's silent in that, but what we do know in the rest of the book is that the synagogue leaders and the priests were in cahoots with Herod and Pilate both in order to maintain their position. And it's clear in the text, even in Herod and Pilate, were very cynical about that. They knew that they were just being used by the priests and uh, the temple leaders in order to maintain their position. But he didn't mind that because he was using them. He used them to keep everybody calm. And in fact, Jesus himself in his trial, why was he on trial? Basically, ultimately, Matthew doesn't make as big a deal out of it as John does, but in John 19, he just tells us that when he's in tr- on trial in the religious leaders, it's, again, it's the leaders of the organized religion there that have put Jesus on trial and want him executed. And when Jesus is asked by Pilate to defend himself, he says, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says, My kingdom is not of this world. If it was, my people would be fighting. But they're not. They're no threat to your government. It is the priests and the religious leaders who said, We have no king but Caesar. Kill him. Wow. So where do we get truth? 
We're probably not going to find it from people that are just trying to pragmatically maintain a position of authority, thinking that they're defending God. God doesn't need us to defend Him. We're not going to find it from our culture. We're not going to find it from the traditions of our elders. We're not going to find it on ourselves. Where we're going to find the truth is from the prophet, Jesus Christ. We need to let Him tell us what's true and what's not. The reason I've gone on into this is... This, I'm really not talking about politics. I know it sounds like I do, like I am. But I'm really not, you know, whoever you think can fulfill whatever political, um, ideas you have. You know, I have ideas about immigration and foreign policy and things like that. And people do this, people do that. There are things that President Trump, uh, wants to advance that I think are good ideas. I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about is when people who fashion themselves to be leaders of a large segment of Christianity decide that in order to push, in order to maintain my position and to push my political agenda, I'm going to turn the world upside down and I'm going to call what's evil good and I'm going to call what's good evil. And I'm all going to justify it on I'm going to accomplish political ends. God has condemned that from day one. He said, you trust me. You trust me and let me tell you what's right or wrong. Okay, now we finally are coming back to this issue. Why is it God, Jesus tells us, do not judge, but then he tells us to judge? That's what we're going to look at. Do not judge, Matthew 5, and I put to 7.14. There's a reason why I gave a specific cutoff. Let's turn to Matthew 7. Actually, we're going to kind of turn to Matthew 5. We start in the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 5, and where he starts, he's talking about, all right, people of the kingdom, what are they going to be like? Well, he said the people that are going to be blessed in the kingdom are people that are poor in spirit, who mourn, people who are gentle, people who hunger and thirst for righteousness, people who are merciful, people who are pure in heart, people who are peacemakers. I'm not any of those actually on my own, but the Lord says... That's what the people of the kingdom are. He continues to talk about personal relationships as he goes uh, further down in the middle of chapter 5. He talks about people of the kingdom or people who don't follow the ways of the world. Um, That's where you've heard But I tell you, you've heard, but I tell you. And he describes the way the world works. And he says, people of my kingdom are not to be like that. They're not to be like people of the world. Their behavior is going to be very different. Then going into chapter 6, Jesus continues and he says that their religious practice is not to be based on impressing other people and what it looks like. Their religious practice is to be based on a devotion to God. It's not just to show off to other people, look how religious I am. That's what he does in chapter 6. So, uh, and then in the second half of chapter 6, the whole thing about anxiety, what's the focus of that? The focus is putting our trust in the Lord for even physical things in day-to-day life. So all through the Sermon on the Mount, what he's doing is addressing each one of us individually. Are we in recognition of our desperate need for God's grace to guide us and separate us from living the life of this fallen world that are all just living out lies and instead being devoted strictly to the Lord where we're serving Him, not out of a desire to impress other people, but to be devoted to Him? That's what's got to come first. That's what the Lord is challenging you with. That's what He's challenging me with. That the first thing we have to do is uh, 
to be trusting Him. And so we come to chapter 7, and what does He say? You see, there's two parts, how we evaluate our own relationship and how we evaluate other people's. I'm going to kind of go back and forth. How do we evaluate our own relationship? First of all, we need to recognize our own sin before we worry about someone else's. We're at the part, do not judge how we evaluate our own relationship with God. Let's read chapter 7, 1 through 5. The first thing we need to do is be looking at ourselves. Don't judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you'll be judged. And by your standard of measure, be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that's in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log that's in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log's in your own? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. I'm trying to see who in here I could pick on. There's, there's almost nobody that's in here. I was going to just pick somebody that's bald and say, you know, I, I, you'd have, I would have a hard time giving somebody a hard time about being bald and say, good grief, now I'll tell you how to take care of baldness. <laughs> well, you might not be too impressed looking at me. You know, probably what I need to do is look in the mirror first and say, well, how well am I doing dealing with baldness? And Jesus says, we need to do that first. And we skip down to verse 7 and following. It says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And it goes on down. And so what God is saying is, we've got to have His help. I can't deal with a log in my eye myself. I don't have the wisdom. I don't have the power. But God does. Am I submitting to Him? Am I first personally going to Him for His wisdom to help me with that? And now that second part, how do we evaluate other people's relationship with God compared to our own? I'm going to mention a couple of things. I'm going to go back to verse 3 and 4. I'm not going to pound the pulpit here because it doesn't say this explicitly in the text. And and maybe Jesus wasn't intending to point this out. But this whole thing about I need to take care of the log in my eye before I worry about the speck in Mike's eye is I think maybe Jesus is wanting us to regard my sin as worse than his. Because it probably is. I'm usually, most of us tend to do the other way around. Well, yeah, I've got my, I've got my little quirks, but he, man, I got a little problem. He's got a big problem. And I think Jesus in this parable is saying we need to recognize it's the other way around. That's the way we need to perceive it. I'm the one with a big problem. And I need to let God help me with that, and then I can help them. And then also verse 12, In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. For this is the law and the prophets. So what do we see? When God says, don't judge, what He's saying is, we need to be sure that I'm not looking at other people as being less than I am and more in need of grace and I don't, and having a condemning attitude towards other people. That's what's going on there. So I have on there that we shouldn't be presuming that we're better than others and treat other people as enemies who are beyond God's grace. I'm going to take just a moment to get geeky a little bit, but it's it's really actually to simplify things. When there are places in the Bible that says do not judge, and then there are other places like God has Paul tell us that we're supposed to judge, that is the same word in Greek, but it's because the Greek word is just like the word judge in English. It has a whole range of uses, doesn't it? We can use judge all the way from judging a dairy calf fair for 4-H. You know, it's looking at things to evaluate the quality all the way to making a statement, all right, this one is good and that one's bad, all the way over here to applying punishment and condemnation based on the decision that we made. And the Greek word krino, just like the English word judge, is used for that whole range. And in this passage, when Jesus tells us not to judge, he's over here. 
It's not our role to pronounce condemnation on people and saying they're not worthy, they're out of reach of God's grace. Put them out. All right. Well, now there's going to be a transition throughout the Scripture, uh, throughout here. Look at the very next thing. Well, he talks about entering through the narrow gate, which is trusting God. But look at the very next thing, verse 15 in chapter 7. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. You'll know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot, tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down, thrown in the fire, so then you'll know them by their fruit. So right after Jesus teaches, do not judge, what does he say? You look at people and you judge in the sense of you need to be discerning and evaluating people's behavior, whether it's right or not. Now, how we respond is another thing. It's not our task to condemn, but God is going to give us the responsibility of recognizing in ourselves and in others. He develops it more in Matthew 12. Turn to Matthew 12. He's going to say again, in verse 33 of chapter 12, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an account, accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you'll be justified, and by your words you'll be condemned. So what we had in chapter 7, you'll know people by their deeds. Here you'll know people by their words. And that's something that Jesus clearly wants us to apply to ourselves, as well as being discerning about other people. Turn to Matthew 16 once again. Jesus specifically instructs His disciples to be discerning about other people's teaching in this case. In 16, 1 through 12, uh, Jesus has rebuked the Sadducees and Pharisees for thinking that they, saying, well, you have the ability to predict the weather, but you can't read the signs around you. You're not able to recognize, verse 4, an evil and or that what they're doing is evil and requesting a sign. And so verse 5, the disciples came to the other side of the sea, and they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, Watch out and beware the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. He's telling them to look and be careful. Well, they don't understand. They're, they're like us. They're pretty thick. So they're trying to think about bread Verse 11, Jesus has to correct him. How is it you don't understand that I'm not speaking to you about bread? But where the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees? And then they understood that he didn't say, beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So we see throughout Matthew, Jesus is instructing them to be discerning about sin and false teaching that's revealed both by actions, by words, and by teaching. And they are to recognize that when they see it and not get caught up in it. Well, he says you're going to know people by their fruit and by their deeds. Well, what is that? Well, there are many lists in Scripture. I'm just going to pick one. And I want you to listen to it. And as we think about my life, you can think about me, think about David Gibson, who's standing up there. Side note, this is, this is using up time. For years, I was in a service business here in Granbury. And on the occasions when I would stand up here, one of the things that would really shake me is I'd think, what if one of my customers 
or one of my coworkers came in on Sunday morning and they saw me standing up here, what would they think? Would they think, oh, that makes sense? Or would they think, what is he doing up there? There's a bunch of lists like this. Uh, turn to Galatians 5. I'm going to read one that's probably the most familiar to most people. But there are lists like this all through. I know where those lists are because in translating into Finney, instead of having to retranslate all these words, I just made a big list of them where we wouldn't have to do it all over again. There's lists like this in Ephesians 4 and 1 Timothy 3, 2 Timothy 3, Titus 3, James 3, 1 Peter 3. They're all in chapter 3 of all these letters. Lists just like this one. Chapter 5, verse 19. Now as you look, as we read this, ask yourselves that people that are trying to find truth from their culture, from the traditions of their elders, from powerful, influential people who are trying to maintain their position supposedly to advance the kingdom. Jesus challenges. He says, I want you guys to be discerning by their fruits and what they say. Listen to this list. Now, the deeds of the flesh are evident. They're immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, Jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is what? It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, Faithfulness, gentleness, gentleness. I thought that was weakness. Jesus says gentleness, self-control. Against such things as these, there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. The reason I'm reading this list is I've had recent conversations with people, with Christians, who have told me that what people say doesn't really matter and what people do doesn't really matter and that these lists don't really matter as long as we maintain and we can vote our whatever our party is. And there's people saying the same thing on the left and the right saying, whatever will advance our power, this doesn't matter. When we decide if we're going to approach people about their sin, we've said we need to let God tell us what sin is. And then secondly, we need to let Him tell us what is sin. And... We've got a whole movement on the left saying, well, same-sex marriage, that's not wrong. That's fine. And over here, on the other side, we've got a whole movement saying, well, God's glorified by whatever strategy and yelling and lying and covering up lies and bullying. Whatever we can do, that's good. I've had people tell me that. Well, we're going to have to decide who we're going to listen to. And this is a challenge to me because I struggle with that. That whole list of inappropriate ways to respond to things I don't like, I feel that in me. And fortunately, God has given me my wife. And she says, I don't know how many times Carrie has told me, David, when you're reading the Scripture and you're reading Jesus' words, don't make him sound mad. Because that's me coming out. That's me coming out. Jesus could get mad, but it was very rare. There's only one or two instances. 
uh, more often he'd get frustrated with his disciples. Man, how long do I have to put up with you guys? But he kept putting up with them. Because his steadfast love and kindness and gentleness is everlasting. Man. I need him. I need him. Trying to decide to cut and paste here. Do we have we do have musicians here? All of that is background to get to Matthew eighteen. And here I have the verses here. But really, you can read through that in Matthew 18. The section that we're particularly in question about is verse 15 through 20. And that's where he gives the steps of what we typically refer to as church discipline when you confront someone who has sinned. And some of you that were in the first hour Sunday school class when I gave that Bible knowledge survey thing, I was really astonished that there were a lot of people that if they couldn't answer any of the other questions or hardly any of the other questions, I was amazed how many people could put this list down on the question. (laughs) Kind of made me nervous, actually. (laughs) But what I want to do is You guys know that. Listen, you can read it as easy as I can. But what I want to put in focus here is what he does when when Matthew gives us this teaching from Jesus. Look what he does. Look back early in verse 18. The disciples are coming to Jesus saying, Who's the greatest in heaven, kingdom of heaven, among themselves? You know, rank us. Is Peter first or James? You know, am I first? Can you imagine? I can. I'd have been right there with them. I do that now. I'm in Papua New Guinea, and I think, I wonder which one of us translation consultants is the best. Oh, man. Hurts to look in the mirror. I'm bald. Every time I look in there, I'm bald. I'm still bald. And Jesus says, I'm telling you, unless you're converted and become like children, you'll not enter the kingdom of heaven. You need to get down off your high horse. And recognize that you've got nothing, you've got no claim. You just come to me as a child. You come to the Father as a child and you let Him give you what you need. Just let Him give you what you need and be dependent on Him and recognize your place. But then He goes on and He begins to talk about other people and He says, David, you need to be sure you're not putting a stumbling block in other people because God feels the same way about them that He feels about you. And so you'd better feel the same way about them too. Don't be putting stumbling blocks in their way. And so then He tells the parable um, about the sheep, the 99 plus 1. What's the point of that? God wants to rescue the lost. I want to slaughter them. I want to throw them off a cliff. They're the enemy. Shoot them. Jesus says, if one of them comes back, the angels in heaven rejoice. David, do you have that attitude about the lost? Do you have that attitude about people who are straying away from my loving care for them? If you do, if you've humbled yourself before me, and if you long to see the lost redeemed and his children live under his shepherding care, now you're ready. Now you're ready to go to Mike. I'm picking Mike because I don't think Mike has any problems. If, <laughs> if I knew Mike had a problem, I wouldn't be using him for an example. Oh, he'll talk to me later. <laughs> now I can go to Mike and say, Brother, I think there's an area that there may be a problem. The Lord can help you. Lord's help me, I'm, I'm just another sinner enjoying God's grace and His power. And God's Holy Spirit can help you, brother. Can we go with that attitude? Can we go with that attitude? And then the, after the steps of church discipline, what's the whole rest of the part is forgiveness. 
Am I ready to forgive Mike? Am I ready to have an attitude of forgiveness to Mike? Whether he responds or not. I might be broken hearted as, as we've had happen in the church before. People just, they dig in their heels, they get mad, they leave. Are we broken hearted and are we willing to have a forgiving attitude towards them? Especially for those who repent. Welcome them back. Welcome them back. So that's why Jesus can say, don't be judging others. But hey, you need to be judging what's right or wrong. And let's bring them back. Let's bring them back. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you that you are one who rescues. That you are a Savior that in fact saves. And so we recognize our dependence on you and thank you for your grace. Lord, we need you to give us that attitude of a desire and a love for others and desire to see them return to devotion to you. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.